0: Covenant Life Fellowship, and for, for more information about our church, and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Well, uh, if you're new with us. Thanks for being with us. Um, my name is David. I'm the senior pastor here. I've had the unique privilege of this week uh, coaching varsity baseball again. I know it shocked some of you. It's my 24th year of coaching varsity baseball. Uh, I know, it's crazy, and um, I just want to say something about that as we start here this morning. Uh, this church does something that I don't think that many people quite comprehend. Uh, it starts with our elder board. They have for, uh see now, we're almost, we're 19 years into this church plant. They have for 19 years now allowed me to coach varsity baseball alongside being a full-time pastor, um, and if you know anything about how I coach baseball, that's also a full-time job. Um, and they have released me to do this because they believe in something that's unique. They believe in the fact that that God wants to take the gospel into every sphere of life, whether that's law, education, um, business, construction, logging, or baseball. And several years ago, uh, Luis, when he was our youth pastor here, he got up and he did something that was interesting. He, I just won my 300th game at the time in high school baseball in Oregon. And he said, he asked everybody to stand who had been a part of my baseball program, whether a parent, uh, grandparent, you know, whatever. And at the time it was one third of our congregation. Um, on Tuesday, we won my 396th game, uh, in high school baseball. We, we just competed in, in the sixth state championship of my career. We've been in eight state semifinals. And in all the wins, I can tell you the thing I look at the most. People ask me often, uh, how, do you, how do you gauge success in coaching? And I said, ask me in 10 years. And I look in the room, um, and I see the faces of young men who are now dads, who are in my church. And I'm going to tell you right now, that's success. And these young men and their families are an absolute joy. I'm now coaching. I'm coaching sons of dads that I coached. And their dads are saying, why didn't you coach us like that? You're way better now. And I'm like, yeah, it's actually true. And I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for that. Um, I mean, words, I mean, I, you know, I get emotional talking about my family because my son played his last game on Friday and uh, he hung up his cleats and, uh, had opportunities to do something else. And he said, dad, this is it. I only want to play for this team, this program and you, and I wanted to play in this game. And, um, so we are incredibly grateful. As a family, like probably you, you, we've had a busy week. You know, we went to Salem on Friday, played the late game Friday night. Uh, we then hung out, had dinner. We got home, oh, dark 30. Uh, my wife got up, did her faithful thing by taking Bethany, our daughter, to her lamb show where she was fantastic. She made it like all Yorks do to the championship round, right, <clears throat> of showmanship, and then uh sold her lamb for the – ridiculous price, which is awesome. And, uh, some people in our church kept bidding to raise the price. and We love that about our church. <laughs> so awesome. And, uh, I took my youngest down to watch him hammer some baseballs on the doubleheader uh, in the morning. And then Jill and I literally, we kissed each other on the way out the door. And then we got in the door last night, kissed each other, went to bed. And then, uh, you can't imagine the anxiety that went to my heart when I got the text that said, hey, church is going to be 8.30 and 10.30, which means for me, I get to preach twice. I was hoping to preach once. So you're you're going to get the second end of whatever energy I have left. Uh, and so that's where we are this morning. What's that? And graduation. I forgot graduation. Thank you. And graduation was last night at five. Thank you, Jill. Uh, yeah, we had graduation last night at five. And uh, so it's been an emotional time for us. So we're going to open our Bibles. First Corinthians chapter 15. Um, here's what we did uh Tuesday after our State semifinal game where we won the game on a walk-off suicide bunt, uh, which was fantastic, right? Um, and which was executed perfectly by my son getting his best friend home, which could not have been more poetic um, in the game. A Wednesday, I walked in the office and I sat down to do my studies. I'd already had some stuff prepared for First Timothy, and I, I contacted the elders. I said, guys, are you okay? I think I just need to preach a sermon I'm really comfortable with rather than getting something new ready because I'm going to be gone for a lot. And they were like, absolutely. So if I if I were going to preach one sermon to my church, this is it. So uh, this is a life sermon. Uh, matter of fact, Dave Forgard reminded me, which I did not remember, that when I was we were making the merge to come with North Roseburg uh, Evangelical Free Church here, they asked me to come candidate and preach first to see if they liked me or not. And I got up in the pulpit and I preached this sermon. Uh, this is the sermon I would leave you with if it was the day before I died. And so I want to leave you with this sermon today. Uh, I don't think it's the day before I'm die, but I can't say that, right? I mean, <laughs> the Lord knows that, you know, by God's grace, I'll still be here tomorrow. Uh, I'll, I will be sleeping tomorrow, but uh, other than that. But several years ago, Mike Keller and Bill Heard and I were at a conference in Phoenix, Arizona. And we heard a message by a guy named Mike Bullmore. Mike is a pastor of a church in Wisconsin. And Mike preached a sermon <clears throat> that was entitled this sermon. It was called the Functional Centrality of the Gospel. And what Mike did in that sermon was he took the gospel and he revealed through the Bible how the gospel is a the central theme of the Bible and how the gospel is to be the central theme of the Christian life. And I remember vividly in that moment when Mike got done preaching, there was probably, I don't know, 500 people in the room. The, the auditorium cleared, and Mike and Bill and I sat stunned because of what we'd heard. Not because it was anything new, but because it was something that revealed to us uh, a, uh, an understanding of the gospel that just got opened a little bit farther. It was like the, it's like a doorway to a new paradise was all of a sudden our eyes could see it clearly. And it literally began to transform the way that I did life. It changed who I was as a dad, as a husband, as a pastor. It transformed the culture of our church. This morning, you you may be new to us, and this sermon will help you understand what matters most to us in this church. It's going to help you understand why we do what we do. Matter of fact, I've had several people in the last three, four weeks who are new here write me notes and just tell me how grateful they are for the church. They love being here. This is going to be their home church. They're excited to be here. And we're so glad to get those those things from you. This sermon will tell you why what you experience here is being experienced. It's certainly not because we're great dudes. Because if you were to dig deep into the heart of this pastor, you would probably not be coming to church here. You'd think this guy's awfully weird. Um, he's got some, some weird thoughts running through his brain. What matters most to us is the gospel. What connects us is the gospel. The connect, the gospel threads are running throughout the life of the church by the grace of God. That's the power of God at work through the gospel. So if you're new with us, you're going to go, okay, this is what kind of makes these guys run. It's why we try to keep the gospel so central and keep the, the, the steering wheel not deviating. If you've been around CLF for a while, this will be a reminder for you. Um, As uh, Mike Keller said to me this morning, he said, Dave, that sermon is a window washing sermon. It clears the window of all the gnats and the stuff and makes you see clearly this is what we're doing. If you've been around several Sundays, this sermon is going to be different because normally we take one text we expound it and we spend our time there. We're going to we're going to jump from place to place to place this morning, right? That's just the nature of the beast uh due to <clears throat> preparation work. So, um here's what I found in this study. I have found greater consistency in my personal growth and my passion for God from this than anything else I have in my Christian life. I I don't know about you, but I, I, I have the journey of the Christian life. It's up and down, topsy turvy, wondering if God's happy with me, mad with me, all the various things. If I did my spiritual disciplines in the morning, I felt like it going to be a great day. If I didn't, it's going to be a bad day. I'm waiting for the shoe to drop all the time. And this has just leveled that out. I found more peace and soul in my, in my, more peace, more rest and peace in my soul than ever before. I, people who don't know me very well don't realize I may come off as a, a very confident, bold, courageous guy, and I'm very anxious. I battle with anxiety. I struggle with fear. And when I was 21 years old, I had terrible pain in my stomach and went to the doctor, and I had an ulcer in my stomach because of all the anxiety. And I know what's in me, and it's not good. And I've had to learn to rest in the Lord. This this sermon, this this message, this life sermon is what's giving me more rest and peace in my soul. I, I don't wrestle with those. And some people know me well, know that I'm an anxiety junkie. I like for people to say, hey, great job, man. You're awesome at this, or you're really good at this. And, and when this sermon began to take root in my soul, I found myself disconnecting from the IV of the approval of man. The fear of man began to leave my soul. I could walk into the room with anybody around and be able to say what I believed I needed to say without the fear of what they might think of me. I've had more patience with people, more willingness to forgive others. I found greater humility at work in my heart. And love for others has been, has been just rising more because of the understanding and application of what I'm going to share with you about. So this, this has shaped my thinking about hard things. It's shaped my thinking about success and failure. It's, it's made me look at the future with hope. Honestly, 2020 did not phase my understanding of the world. Matter of fact, what 2020 did for me, it made me realize again, there is a God who is at work and he was doing things far beyond what my could imagine. And 2020 is just a blip on the radar screen with that. And this sermon gave me, has reminded me of that regularly. Let me just give you a word of caution as we start this morning is that when we think of gospel stuff, too many of us think of the gospel message as something we preach only to non Christians, which we should. And it's only for non-Christians, and we fail to see the impact that the gospel is to continue to have for the Christian daily in their lives. For example, just consider what these two guys had to say, two men that I respect. John Stott said this, All around us we see Christians and churches relaxing their grip on the gospel, fumbling it, and in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. And these are not liberal Christians who just say, We don't know if the Bible is true. These are conservative Christians not seeing and understanding the truth of the gospel as seen throughout the entire pages of Scripture. C.J. Mahaney wrote this, The gospel is not one class among many that you'll attend during your life as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building that all the classes are housed in. And I don't know about you, but in many places in my own life, and when I look around the body of Christ at large, the gospel is not central to our theology. It's not central to our thinking. Like, what did Jesus do that should affect the way I think today? It's not central to our behavior. Like, because the gospel's true and these things have already taken place, then therefore, how should I respond by the gospel's power because the gospel's true? And this morning, that's what I want to look at this morning. I want to explore this, the functional centrality of the gospel. Don't, don't misunderstand this message, right, from the start. I'm not here to, to, like, challenge you to go share the gospel more. You should do that. But that's not the nature of this message. Here, here's what I want us to do. I want us to explore the gospel more, grow deeper in gospel depths, if you will, because here's what I firmly believe. The deeper you go into the gospel, the more you understand the gospel, the more you believe the gospel, the more you grasp the gospel. You appreciate the gospel. Guess what you're going to do with the gospel? You're going to talk about the gospel. I want us to be amazed once again at the grace of God on display from Christ and see the implications and the applications of that. In a sense, I I want to encourage us as a church to not lose our grasp on the gospel. I mean, I want us to get it And cling to it so firmly, right? That's what the hope of this is. So, as we start this morning, let's stand and we're going to read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5, and then we'll pray together. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12th. Let's pray. Father, you, you have been so kind to us because in our church, our people have come to expect to see Jesus every Sunday through the preaching of God's word. But this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes to the radical implications <laughs> and the applications that come because of the gospel. And Lord, you, you know our limitations. Many of us are exhausted. Keep us attentive. Give us strength. There are people here that need to hear the gospel again because they're discouraged. Elevate their eyes. To the things above where Christ is seated. There are non-Christians today that need to hear the gospel and need to respond to the gospel. Turn their hearts to Christ. But Father, leave us this morning with, with an affection for Jesus like, like we didn't have when we came in. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. <clears throat> now the first thing I want you to notice is this uh, this little image. Now, I'm not creative, right? So, this is the best I can do. I mean, I mean, no. So, you know, I had to have Perry redo it because I had some goofy font that didn't look good. So Perry redid this one, thank God. And if I could be creative, I would be able to put an arrow in this. I don't have the, I don't know how to do that. Some of you may do. So what I would do is I'd take an arrow and I would go from the gospel, the center, and I would draw it going outward. The reason that, you'll notice the gospel is in the center. And that's going to be our first point. What is the gospel? Then we're going to talk about gospel implications, meaning because the gospel's true, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us who believe? And then lastly, gospel application. Because the gospel's true and the implications are true, then what should we do by the gospel power? Now, what we have a tendency to do as Christians is we go the other direction. We go, we need to do something and we're not. And to get forgiven, we need Jesus to die. I want to look at it. I think the Bible goes the other direction. Jesus died. Therefore, these things are true. Therefore, you go do. Right? It makes sense? So these are our three points. We're going to make up our three points. We're going to talk about the gospel, the implications of the gospel, and the application of the gospel because of the gospel's power. So let's start with point number one, which is what is the gospel? Now, again, you're going to go, look, man, we've heard this from you before. Great. Great. You're going to hear from me again. We're going to keep doing this again so that when I'm dead and gone, you will remember, right? As Peter would say, okay? Notice what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance, meaning it's the most important thing. Christ died for our sins, rose again from the dead. He appeared to witnesses. They saw him. Christ died for our sins, meaning Parents, if you are not delivering to your children as a matter of first importance, you're not giving them true life. You help them be a great athlete or a great student or a great lawyer or whatever, but if you're not giving them the gospel, you're not giving them life. It's a matter of first importance. Now think about where this is written. It's written at the end of 1 Corinthians to a church that was completely messed up. And Paul has written to them about a variety of things. And he gets to the end and says, I want to remind you of what the most important thing is. Christ died for our sins, rose again from the dead, and he appeared to witnesses. It's the most important thing, the primary thing, the main thing. And you might ask, well, why was it so important? <laughs> why, why did Paul say this is so important? Well, Paul wrote in the book of Romans something fascinating about the gospel. He says, for I'm not ashamed of this gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Notice what he says about the gospel. It is the power of God. He did not say it's the strategies of men that's the power of God. It's the, it's the, the dreams that you might have that's the power of God. He didn't say that it's the, the whims of what we come up with in the culture that's the power of God. He said there's one thing that's the power of God, and it's the gospel. You've got to understand how powerful, how amazing this is. Are you aware that only the Son of God is called the radiance of the glory of God? And are you aware... Only one thing in the Bible is called the power of God. It's not an earthquake. It's not, it's not a storm or a hurricane. It is the gospel. Meaning, it is the most important thing to Paul and the most important thing to God to deliver because by that gospel, God is doing his powerful work. Without the gospel, there isn't that power going to work. The most important thing to Paul to deliver and bring up over and over and over again was the gospel because it's the power of God. Jerry Bridges put it like this. The gospel is not only the most important message in all of human history. It is the only essential message in all of history. Yet we allow thousands of professing Christians to live their entire lives without clearly understanding it and experiencing the joy of living by it. That's why my historical hero, even though I think this is homiletically incorrect, would say this, take your text and make a beeline to the cross. His point was this, everywhere you turn in the pages of Scripture, there's one truth being permeated. You you have to ask some questions Why, when God created the earth, did man fall to get us to the gospel? Why, in the Old Testament, do you see good kings and bad kings to say to us, there's only one righteous king and one good king? Why, in the book of Judges, did the people rise? And because God saved them, then they sin, and then God sent a deliverer again and again and again to say to them, there's only one perfect deliverer, and is pointing ahead all the time over and over again. All throughout the Bible story, you see one truth permeated. There's a king coming and his name is Jesus. He's coming. All biblical and theological thought begins with the gospel and will end in the glory of Christ. Notice how Paul put this in other places. In Galatians 6, he said that he would boast in nothing other than the cross of Jesus Christ. Think about all the things Paul could boast in. Read Philippians 3 to get his resume. If anybody could boast, it'd be the Apostle Paul. And what does he say? There is nothing more I'm going to brag about than the gospel of Christ. I don't want to lean in and take pride in anything other than the gospel of Christ. In his last letter to his dear son in the faith, Timothy, he told Timothy to guard this one truth. And to remember, never forget that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Of all the things he could tell Timothy, what does he tell him? Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget this. See, when you go through the New Testament, you... You see the centrality of the gospel all the way through. All theological thought, all spiritual behavior take their clues from the gospel. The gospel is the centerpiece of all other doctrines. So if that's true, if the gospel is central to the Bible, then it should be central to the thinking and understanding of Christians. Several years ago, I was in a pastor's meeting, and one of the pastors made an intriguing comment that I was stunned by. And he said, guys, I did something this last Sunday I haven't done in in, in seven years. And the guy said, what, what was that? And he said, I preach on the blood of Christ. All the guys applauded in the room, and I, I sat so stunned. And he said, David, you, you look perplexed. I said, I, I am. What else is there to preach? All around us, everywhere, we allow Christians to lose their grasp of the gospel. Yet central to the gospel's theme, central to the Bible's theme is the gospel. And if the gospel is central, we need to make it central. We must make it central. It must be central to our thinking and our living. That's the second point is gospel implications. Because the gospel is true these things are true. I'm just going to give you a sampling. There could be a, a lot of these things. Let me just give you a sampling of these things. And these are, I think they're in your outline, or maybe they're not, I don't know. I haven't looked at the outline today. So um, we made two outlines because we have one for the field, one for here, right? Okay, so here's the first one. The first one is we have peace with God. Romans 5, 1 says this very clearly. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Meaning, without justification, Without the work of the gospel, we have no peace with God. We who were enemies of God have been brought near to God and brought near to be at peace with God through the gospel. Justification is the work of God making us right with God. It's God's work of declaring us right before him, meaning God no longer sees us in our sin, And treats us in our sin. But just do this math. He treats us in accordance to his son's perfect work on our behalf. What do you and I have to offer that we would receive that gift? The only thing that we brought to salvation was the sin for which Jesus died for. And we have been brought to peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, you'll notice we have access to God and we have confidence before him. Notice Romans 5, 2, and Hebrews chapter 10. Through him, speaking of Christ, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But then look at verse Hebrews verse 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. See, we don't just have access to God. We have confident access to God. We, we don't have to cower down in his presence any longer due to our sin. Meaning when you and I sin against God and we're a child of God, We do not have to go into God's presence, cowering down, just hoping and praying that God will let us in. No, God has let us in already by the blood of Christ. And we go in with confidence, confessing our sin before God, knowing that he's forgiven us because of Christ. And we can leave empowered to change. We come with humble boldness, not presumption. And confidence because he has paved the way through the blood of Christ. The gospel tells us that access is granted. God doesn't look at you when you come to God anymore and say, it's you again. Really? You're back after doing the same thing again? That's not how God treats you. That's not how God looks at you. You have confident access into the presence of God because of the blood of Jesus. Listen, this is is way better than having the security code to Fort Knox when it had stuff in it. Way better. We have access to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, there is no condemnation on us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Without the gospel, there is condemnation. And friends, you know where condemnation comes from? It comes from everywhere. It comes from God. We're facing the judgment of God upon our sin. It comes from others telling us we don't measure up. It comes from ourselves. But but in the gospel, if, you, if you're a child of God, the Bible says there is none of that. There is no condemnation, and it can come in many forms. It's that moment when you realize, I just haven't spent enough time with my kids that weight of not getting everything done at the end of the day that you wish you thought you should have got done. It's the grief and mental distress of your past failures, whether those are moral or whether those are simple. It's a frustration over not reading our Bibles enough, not praying enough, not witnessing enough, not giving enough, not being good enough. The implication of the gospel is that for all of us who struggle under any type of condemnation, The power of the gospel says there is none. Because the gospel is true, there is no condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus. Now, you might say, now, wait a minute, dude. I'm supposed to feel bad when I sin, right? Well, the answer would be yes, maybe. Yes, we're to feel convicted. And yes, we feel sorrowful because we've sinned against God. But conviction and condemnation are two different things. Condemnation is the feeling of guilt that continues to point you to your failures. You know what condemnation is? Condemnation is that moment that you're reading the newspaper and you see a person who's running for office. And when they're running for office, they go through their Twitter feed and they pull up something that they did when they were 17 years old. And they say, see there? Look how bad they are. That's how the world treats its people. That's condemnation. You know what conviction is? Conviction is the feeling of guilt pointing us to the perfection of Christ and the payment for which he has done on our behalf, bringing us to the love of God and finding forgiveness of sin. Instead of God saying, here's your Twitter feed when you were 17, God says, I don't even see that anymore. I choose not to bring it up to your account anymore. Rather, I see you in the precious blood of my son. The struggle against sin is a constant reminder that you're a child of God. If you're not struggling with sin, you need to question if you're a child of God. The struggle against sin means the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. There will be conviction of sin, but it differs from condemnation. Jerry Bridges put it like this. One of the great blessings of living by grace, the reality of the gospel, is that because God no longer counts those sins against us, We can honestly face up to them and begin to mortify them or put them to death with the aid of the Holy Spirit. See, one of the beauties of understanding the no condemnation implication is, you know, that God already sees your sin anyway. And so when you're confronted with it, you know, a couple things, you know, number one, that God sees it all. And he loves you anyway, because of Christ, he's already convicted you. He's already he's already said that's true. And if somebody brings it up to your account, you can say, hey, you know what? You don't know 99% of what the depth of the sin, but thank you for bringing it up to me. So when people come to me and say, Dave, I think you're a guy that struggles with pride. I'm like, no brainer. I mean, yeah, thank you for bringing that one up. But you only see this amount of my pride. My God has seen all of it. And so if you don't mind, would you help me mortify this and kill it? The last implication I want you to notice is forgiveness of sin. It's found in Colossians 3, 2, 13. See, the gospel means that God no longer treats us according to our sin. God chooses to no longer remember your sin. He doesn't forget your sin. He chooses to no longer bring it up to your count. He chooses no more to count it against you. He treats you differently now because you're a child of God. God no longer brings your sin up against you because he has forgiven you. He's washed away all your sin. Our sin has been forgiven because the gospel is true. See, what, what you're seeing in these implications is something fascinating. The gospel is the central theme of how God treats us and relates with us. Notice, none of these implications are about what we have done. God doesn't treat us as his children on the basis of what we've done. He treats us on the basis of what his son has done. What we like to do is throw into our relationship with God what we've done. We do it in little ways. We get a bad health diagnosis and we say, man, I don't deserve this, God. I've been serving you all of my life. How, God, why would you bring this to me? Do you see us throwing our works into our relationship with God? Last fall, going through a really rough mental challenge of things, I remember looking at my wife and I said, you know, one of the challenges I'm struggling with is I'm I'm getting older. I'm worried that when I get to my end of my life, I will look back and I will have nothing. I'll be a pauper. And I've served Christ all my life. And she looked at me and said, "Uh, you got the gospel, bud. You've got Christ. Look at what God has done around you. Do you think for one minute he's not going to meet you? In other words, get your head out of God relates to me on the basis of my work to God. God treats us on the basis of what his son has done for us, and we should relate to God on the basis of what his son has done for us. Now, again, this is a sampling of the implications Since the gospel is true, these things are true. Now, at this point, you've got to ask yourself, do you really believe the gospel? (laughs) Do you trust in the finished work of Christ on your behalf? If you're not a child of God, none of these implications are true for you. They can be by you putting your trust and hope and confidence in Christ. Maybe you are a child of God and you are interjecting your work into Christ's work to think that God somehow relates to you on the basis of your work. So your success is because you've been faithful through the years. No, 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 no. Your success is because God has been kind to you. Not because you're so brilliant. Right? Or you may go, my failures are because God somehow is mad at me. No, 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 no. If you're a child of God, he's relating to you solely on the basis of his dear son. See, the gospel has got to become something that we see as true. And because it's true, this is how God is relating to us and how we relate to God. That leads us to the third point then, which is gospel application. Because the gospel's true and the implications are true, and this is how God works it out with us, how do we live then? What do we do? Right? Since we're made right with God, what? how do we behave? And what you're going to notice is all Christian behavior flows from the motivation from the gospel and the power that the gospel supplies. See, notice just a few of these. Again, just a smattering. There's five of them. We are to forgive others as Christ forgave us. See this clearly in Ephesians chapter 4. Notice the command. It's to forgive. Notice the motivation. As God and Christ forgave you, he forgave us fully. He forgave us instantaneously. He forgave us without us asking for it. Jesus hanging on the cross, looking in advance and looking at his feet said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Therefore, we forgive others because the gospel is true and we have the power to forgive others because the gospel is true. Secondly, we have Christ's word attention. Notice Colossians three verse one, since, since You have been raised, not when you are raised, but since you have been raised, we are to set our sights on the things above where Christ is seated. In other words, since the gospel is true and working in us, we are now to look upward where Christ is. Now, what's fascinating is in the last, I don't know, 20 years or so, maybe a little bit longer than that in Christendom, you see this real, this downward and inward look. You fulfill your dreams. Christ is here to make your dreams and your hopes come true. Biblical faith is looking up and looking out. It's looking up to God and acting out in faith to help other people. Notice what it says in Colossians 3. Since you have been raised, set your attention where Christ is. Meaning, wherever Christ is, that's where your gaze should be. Or as Hebrews 12 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, locking our eyes on what Jesus did, what he's accomplished, where he's at work, who is the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of God. I love verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 12, where it says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood as you're getting as you're dealing with your sin. And where does that start? By looking to Christ. Number three, we have a zeal for good works. Because the gospel is true, we will have a passion or a desire to do good things for others around us. Again, looking out, then looking, I mean looking up and then looking out. And these good works don't make us right with God. They flow from a heart that is made right with God. Martin Luther, I think, said it best. God doesn't need your good works. But your neighbor does. Your neighbor does. Hopefully today, and I hope this may happen for you, it would be a blessing for you if it does, that you and your neighbor at your, right next door will have some sort of a little test today that will go on that you can solve by the power of Christ. I hope today you have an interaction with your neighbor. I hope today that you have an opportunity to serve somebody, to show them the reality of Jesus at work in your life. I hope today that it won't be too bad, but that somebody might hurt you and you could offer them forgiveness. That you could actually be patient with them. I hope today that when you're sitting at this traffic light, some old lady decides not to go and you don't honk. <laughs> I hope today that will happen. right? I hope that you will have a moment where you can show people the glory of Christ at work in your life. Because God doesn't need your good work, but your neighbor does. Because the gospel is true, we will want to serve other people. But the fourth thing I want you to notice is we will excel in giving. Second Corinthians 8 says something fascinating, talking about the Corinthian church giving a gift offering to the church in Jerusalem. Here's what Paul said. But as you excel in everything in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in all love for you, see that you excel in this grace of giving also. Now notice what the motivation is. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that by your poverty, by his poverty, you might become rich. Do you see the connection that Paul makes with giving and the gospel? He said, Jesus came who was rich to become poor so that you who are poor might become rich. In other words, the gospel gives us all the motivation we need to be great givers. Our Lord Jesus was a great giver, and therefore the gospel motivates us to be like him, to be a great giver. So often as we go through giving stuff in the church, people say, hey, do I need to give 10%? Is that where I start? Or, you know, what's the right percentage? And I tell them, actually, in the Old Testament, it's about 37%. But I wouldn't, you know, I'm not going to charge you for that, right? I mean, we're going to do that in the church. I mean, if you want to give 37%, great, that's awesome. What our response is generally is this. You'll notice in the New Testament, there's no percentage. Todd. Instead, there's a gospel motivation connected to it. Basically, what Paul is saying, which should absolutely throttle us when we think about how we give, is are we giving with an understanding of Christ coming for us, and does that motivate the way we give? So is it 10%? Could be. Is it 20%? Could be. But what does God love? God loves a cheerful giver whose giving understanding is motivated by Christ came for me. Why would I not give? Why would I not give of all of I have? Why would I not give of my gifts and my talents and my money for the glory of God? Because he became poor so that I might become rich. Matthew Henry, I think, wrote this best when he said this. Speaking of Jesus, he... He was born in poor circumstances, lived a poor life, and died in poverty. And this was for our sakes, that we thereby might be made rich, rich in love and favor of God, rich in the blessings and promises of the new covenant, rich in the hopes of eternal life, being heirs of the kingdom. This is a good reason why we should be charitable to the poor out of what we have, because we ourselves live upon the charity of the Lord Jesus. And the last thing you'll notice is transform affections. Notice what Corinthians says, that those of us who are in Christ, we are a new creation. One of the remarkable applications of the gospel is how the gospel changes our spiritual appetites or our spiritual palates, right? I'll give this to you in a sad, but maybe humorous example for my own life. I grew up in the state of Texas. We never ate Chinese food, right? I mean, my mom and dad loved hamburgers and they loved Mexican food. We, uh, you know, I enjoyed a good water burger, taquito for the morning if I had a breakfast. I loved Sonic chili dogs. I mean, oh my word! After a ball game, a Sonic chili dog was the best thing ever, right? And we'd eat Tex Mex like it was going out of style, right? I mean, we good Mexican food now, right? But when I moved to Oregon, my wife now I was dating this beautiful blonde girl, so they said, "Hey, let's go out to Chinese." And I'm like, Ch- "Chinese? What is? You know, I mean, really?" Yeah, let's go to Kowloon's, and we went to Caloons, and we got to Caloons, and she said, you like hot stuff, right? And I said, yeah. So she dipped this piece of chicken into that hot mustard and just slammed it in my mouth. I didn't know you're not supposed to breathe when you don't eat that. So I'm like, it's like, I mean, my whole face is like, I'm tearing up, everybody's laughing. You know, Brian, I think it was like nine, and he's like on the floor laughing at me, and I'm tearing up, and they're all thinking this is funny, right? And I ate the food, and I was like, this is really good. <laughs> this is Chinese? Yeah. Okay. Well, my mouth got open to a little bit of Chinese. But then a few years later, somebody said, hey, there's another Chinese joint called the China Palace. Remember the China Palace? And somebody introduced me to the Mongolian beef, and I love hot stuff. And I, I said, I want it the hottest you can possibly make. And I ate it, and I sweat. I was like, this is so good. And I, I said, this is really, really good. I like this Chinese food. And then my palate changed. Kowloon's, China Palace. And then... We were on a trip and we went to P.F. Chang's, <laughs> and somebody introduced us to lettuce wraps. I mean, glory to God for lettuce wraps! I mean, I ate a lettuce wrap and I was like, "This is a we're with the, are the angels rejoicing in heaven right? Now? This is so good, right? Now, as as sad and as funny as that story is, I mean, I know some of you people who've really had Chinese food are going, "Dude, you got to get out more, man. I mean, something's wrong with you, man." I mean, what is PF Chang's your highest level? What's wrong with you, dude? Right? I mean, I get it, but, but that gives you a little bit of a glimpse listen, of what the gospel is doing in you. It is taking you from spiritual sonic, <laughs> right? To spiritual PF Chains. I mean, you, you are moving, listen, from never, I mean, never tasting anything eternal then now all of a sudden your taste buds are exploding. See, you're, you're going from never understanding, seeing anything eternal to now on earth, everywhere you go, you see the hand of God. How amazing is that? Because the gospel is true, we not only go from knowing we need to forgive to now desiring to forgive. Because the gospel is true, we no longer just know that we need to love our enemies. We can love our enemies. We no longer feel the angst about sharing the gospel more. We love Jesus so much. We can't help but talk about the gospel more, right? It mean, just happens. Why? Because the gospel is transforming us. See, all Christian behavior flows from the gospel. Because the gospel is true, then we are to live a certain way by the power of God. So what you have is the gospel permeating out of you, affecting the way you interact with God and affecting the way you interact with other people. Right. So in my life, when I disconnected from the approval IV, because I realized in in Christ, I had all the approval I could ever need. You know what it let me do? It let me give approval to people everywhere. When I knew in Jesus, I had a friend that sticks closer than a brother, would never leave me nor forsake me. I could be a better friend. When I knew that the God of the universe had already spoken all the truth about me that anybody else ever could, when my brothers came to me with a criticism, I could sit and rest and say, thank you, God, for bringing these men into my life. See, do you see what the gospel does? It transforms us in the way we live. It motivates, it empowers the way we live. That's why, listen, at CLF we say things. We say, like, let's keep the gospel central. It's why we, why we say, let's preach the gospel to ourselves every day and in every way. It's why when you come to a church service at CLF, we are going to try to see Jesus on every page of Scripture. We're going to have a sighting of the gospel every week so that when you come in, there's going to be a touchstone for you to remind you of something of the gospel. Because when we worship, when we sing songs, we want to declare the glories of Christ so that when you leave, listen, you are getting the aroma of Christ, not the aroma of us. I, I don't, this is off notes. I said this earlier. I don't want to smell my spiritual armpits anymore. <laughs> I, I want to, I want to hear I want to see, I want to smell the aroma of Christ. We want preaching that leaves you with Christ. So listen, just, just before we close, and this, that's why we want to offer you great resources. This book by R.C. Sproul, The Truth of the Cross, will help you. He said this was the most important book he ever wrote. This little book, The Gospel, a Gospel Primer. Daily meditations on the gospel. One of my favorite parts in this book is about how to free yourself from the love of self. That the gospel says that Jesus has loved you way better than you ever could. It's gospel gold. Then if you want something every day of your life, this little, this gigantic big boy, every day, New Morning Mercies by Paul Tripp. Every day just gives you a gospel meditation. Just to help you. Think through the gospel and get it central to your thinking and relating to God and relating to others. So listen, you have to ask, have you trusted Jesus? Have you trusted this gospel to save you? If you haven't trusted in this gospel to save you, none of these implications help you. You can't change without the power of God. Or if you are a believer, are you rejoicing in this gospel? Do you preach it to yourself? Regularly, do you have a spouse like mine who will just remind you, hey man, don't forget you're a child of God. Look what the gospel has done. Look what Jesus says about about you and about this world. Don't lose your mind. Are you marveling at what the gospel means for you? That you are a forgiven child of God with a seat at God's table. And you have an eternal inheritance waiting for you in heaven. Are you marveling at that? I mean, does it just amaze you that you could be a child of God? If you don't marvel at that, you don't know yourself well enough. You don't know your God well enough. Are you applying the gospel? Are you you not asking like, don't ask what would Jesus do? Ask what has he already done? What has Jesus done, and because of what He's done, how should that change how I interact with this person right now or this situation right now? What is the gospel application that comes from gospel power? And listen, CLF, let's, let's, just, let, let's just let's just not let's not take our hands off the steering wheel. Let's keep this gospel central to all that we think, all we do, and by God's grace, that's what we'll hear every week. Let's pray. father there is nothing like hearing the gospel preached again nothing like marveling at the work of Jesus on our behalf again thank you for setting Christ before our eyes again I pray for my friends today. I pray for those that don't know Jesus that are here. They're listening, watching online. Lord, if they don't know Christ, would you stir their hearts to believe in Jesus? To put their trust and confidence in Christ. I pray for those who have trusted Christ and they're discouraged. They've thrown their work into their relationship with you and expecting you to relate to them on the basis of their good work or bad work. Would you help them see the wonder of the finished work? of Christ and encourage their souls. For those of us that are encouraged by these things, help us to want to go deeper and, and grow more in our understanding of the beauty of the gospel. The father, help us help us. We, we we're desperate to keep this gospel central to what we do and how we interact with one another, what we preach, what we sing, because Lord, it's you at work. It's not, it's not our, our will or our strategies or our, Intellect or our, our good looks or any of those things that have made this thing do what you're doing. It's you at work. And we, we ask you by your grace to help us keep the gospel central for the glory of Christ and the good of your people and the advancement of your gospel. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.